Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Safsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, and today, as we always do, I have a very special uh, podcast and we have the um, pleasure of welcoming Dennis Debusha to the podcast. Dennis, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, Dennis, uh, for those of you who don't know who Dennis is, uh, he's the president of 22V Research and he's their chief uh, market strategist. Um, before Dennis uh, joined 22V or actually found 22V, he was, um, or certainly when I met Dennis for the first time, he was the head of Evercore ISI's portfolio strategy research and uh, quantitative research team. So that's uh, where I met Dennis. Now, I'm trying to remember, Dennis, when did you join uh, Evercore ISI? So uh, 2003. So ISI wow. is part of 2003. Wow. And then I became the head of strategy in like 2011. Right. Then the head of quant around 2014. Um, and I was basically a macro specialist before then. But I am original ISI, you know, going way back to 2003. Wow. Okay. I uh, c can't remember when, uh, well, I don't, I don't think we, uh, our paths crossed uh, at that time, but maybe a bit later on. Yes. In the later portion, you know, when I got more into strategy and quant and started yeah. to come over to, to London more frequently. Yeah, absolutely. I, re I remember that well. So, um, maybe, uh, Dennis, give us a little bit of background to yourself. Um, obviously you've, um, uh, you know, been, uh, um, I said before, but maybe, you know, background to yourself and, and why, why set up 22V? Yeah, thanks. So I'll start, uh, yeah, just a quick background. Um, ISI, like I mentioned, uh, working with Ed, uh, started there in 2003 before that Merrill Lynch, uh, sales and trading program. Um, when I started at, uh, and ISI, and you might, you'll probably appreciate this. If you go on a way back machine, 2003 macro is not like, you know, the most important thing in the world. Um, it was a much different environment where most people assumed that macro was not something that you needed and it was kind of a fringe part of the research process. Um, so uh, it was interesting to join Ed Hyman, who's obviously, you, you know, and is a legend in the business and fabulous economist and worked for him. Uh, I was essentially a macro specialist there. Um, I started writing a note called The Early Thought in uh, 2005, which is kind of a way to bring a whole bunch of things uh, that the firm was talking about together. Uh, for some reason, as the financial crisis accelerated and you know the, more, the world became more macro, the note gained in popularity. Um, some Fed officials started to get on it, and we became... Again, this goes back to which is so much different than today. There wasn't a lot of macro special shops back then. So there was a small group of people that were kind of straddling, at least I would argue, straddling the kind of equity and what's going on in the broader macro backdrop. And so um, started liaison with a lot of people in Washington, macro universe in general, um, how that is impacting equity markets, what our research was saying. And that was kind of like our coming out party. We got lucky, I should say, not lucky, but we were uh, uh, pretty right on some of the calls into the financial crisis. And then, you know, from there, turned it into strategy. So that's the the background and how, you know, the, the Cliff Notes version of how the uh, my career developed. And then on 22V, um, I'm very interested in starting another type of ISI firm. Um, I think the uniqueness now, just to give you a 
what 22V is. 22 is my dad's number. And my dad actually played for the New York Knicks, uh, was on the 69, 70, and 72, 73 championship teams. So if you, for anybody on the, that's listening that knows those old Nick teams, they were uh, the ultimate team concept. Uh, there was a book uh, written about it called The Open Man, which was the idea of always, you know, getting the ball to the, the person that has the open shot as opposed to being an individual. So that's kind of what the firm, uh, you know, the DNA of the firm. Um, and so I did want to start something else uh, entrepreneurial. Um, I also found that there's a lot of people that I've dealt with over the years that, you know, that are not normally associated with the sell side that are super interesting, that might be interested in working with, with myself and starting a new firm. So I was very lucky to launch the firm and try and bring some of these unique contacts, uh, in addition to what we do to, you know, to investors. And so we have, um, Head of our China uh, team right now, Michael Hershon, was U.S. Treasury's de- deputy liaison in China in both the Obama and Bush administration. And he's got deep ties and, you know, uh, obviously facing the, the Chinese government when he was there and he was at the Fed and he's got a macro background. Uh, John Roke on the technical side was at Soros for six years and uh, then went with Scott Besson to uh, um, to help him start uh, KeySquare for four years. So he's another example of someone that's not really sell side oriented. It's got real world, real world or buy side experience. Um, Kim Wallace on the policy side, who was chief of staff to Geithner at Treasury, um, and uh, you know mostly recently at Eurasia Group. Uh, another example, Gerard McDonnell, who's our economist, and you know he sat next to Steve Cohen for twelve years. Point uh, seventy two, and his job was to get these kind of big economic questions right. All the people I mentioned, I think, are just really unique, talented people that aren't normally associated with the sell side, um, I think can, you know, help, you know, uh, investors broadly. And that was the idea of kind of creating a firm around that framework, um, as opposed to just kind of bolting on somebody that's, uh, you know, at a large bank that everybody knows. And, you know, because that model has been done, people have done it extremely successful. And I don't think we're going to compete in that area. Mm, okay. Well, that's uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, maybe just a follow up question, because I think uh, the topic is quite interesting. In your mind, what is the big difference between like, buy side people versus sell side people? <laughs> buy side people actually have to risk, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah. So, thank you for asking that. Actually, because uh, and we didn't even go over this before, but I, I part of the uh, what we're trying to do here is trying to bridge that gap to a certain extent. Because on the sell side, I think there's a ton of arrogance in the sense that. You know, as a strategist, as an example, I can make a call and say, the S&P is going to go to 4,500 next year, just making up a number. And I can come back to you and say, wasn't I so great? Well, did I have a process along with that? Did I even understand your investment style? What are the type of stocks that are going to work? Um, And so you can make prognostications and expect a lot of adulation for it. But there's no, just like the, you know, people that go on CNBC, uh, or political commentary, there's no downside if we're wrong, right? I mean, there's a little bit of downside, I guess, reputationally, and eventually we lose clients over time. But unlike the buy side, like, you know, they actually are putting risk on. So if they don't understand your process and they don't understand, you know, why it is you're coming to your conclusions, then, you know, it's very hard, I, in my view, for a sell sell side person to make a difference. So I'm finding there's a small group of people on the sell side, sell side that get that. Um, so the, you know, but to come back to 
to, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, the buy side actually has to put risk on and the sell side doesn't, yeah. right? And that's, that's just, and that's just it. So you guys actually have to worry about, you know, being right or wrong every day and looking at the P&L and having to live with that. And I don't have a P&L to look at. I've got a paper thing. If my S&P target's wrong, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, but is the world going to change for me? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very, very good point. As in, certainly in this uh, environment that we've been, certainly with markets as volatile and as difficult to read as they have been, um, you know, facing clients as well is also one of yes. those big challenges. Um, yes. certainly in a year like, uh, certainly in a year like this year. Um, so, um, maybe let's uh, dive into, um, maybe, you know, your key thoughts about the markets at the moment. Um, obviously in your latest thinking, um, uh, you know, and certainly one of the messages I've picked up is that, you know, cyclical stocks are you know, trading at a big discount relative to defensive. That's closed in a yep. bit over last week or two, but certainly when we met, I'm you know, thinking about four or five weeks ago now when you were in London, uh, you know, that gap was just huge, right? Um, yep. uh, are you still thinking that way? Uh, are, you know, the sectors we should be focused on as we move forward um, where the stocks are really priced for a, for a, Maybe a mild recession, possibly not a deep recession, but um, uh, is a pricing right versus an economic outcome? Yeah, I, I think when we met, the spread between cyclicals and defensives was basically on a next 12 month multiple basis in the zero percentile. Now you've gone up all the way to like the 13th percentile, going back to 1990. Um, so I still think that cyclicals are over discounting relative to defenses, of course, a pretty deep economic contraction. Um, I would say the nuance to the argument now is that you've seen the cyclical multiple come up a decent amount. And, you know, on a relative basis, it's still at a deep discount. I still think they are biased higher over time because our economic outlook is probably a little bit better than some others. And we can come back to that. Um, What is still very clear, though, is that defensive multiples on both an absolute relative basis are still way too high. If you think there's going to be any type of short rate, meaning a two-year yield around these levels for an extended period of time, and even lower if you want to go back to 25 to 3% on the short rate uh, over the next year, um, then the defensive multiple is just way too high. I mean, every time we've seen a significant slowdown with short rates around these levels, or I should say above the zero bound is probably the easiest way to say it, um, you've had significantly lower multiples. So I think from here, it's less about the getting both sides of the trade right, which was the call when we saw you four or five weeks ago. And now it's, now it's more about defensives are still going to melt away over, over time and cyclicals will do fine, but probably grow more in line with earnings growth from here. Mm. I mean, this, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'll just say this. So in terms of the, um, you know, maybe jump the gun a little bit in terms of the, your economic forecasts for next year and, uh, you know, maybe the direction, of the U.S. economy, uh, you know, over the next kind of six or twelve months, clearly it's been a lot stronger than most people anticipated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, given the 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 significant rate hikes we've already seen, um, when do you feel that the numbers? Because just look at Q4 Q4 numbers, and they've just been revised up pretty much every day now right at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, when do we see that sort of peak in, in terms of kind of GDP and, and that sort of slow grind down uh, into next year? Yeah, I think it's going to, uh, the economic growth will start to uh, quicken to the downside, I think, in January. 
Um, you still have a lot of pent up service demand. It appears that'll probably take you through the holiday season for obvious reasons. When I say obvious now, uh, you know, in a little bit of hindsight, but in obvious in the sense that, you know, people go to restaurants and travel through the holiday season. So that service economy that reopened through the summer and that was very intense and led to a lot of the inflation because obviously the service sector is um, where most of the labor is probably extends through the end of this year. Uh, against that, you have a clear slowing in the housing market, which we're seeing every day. Mortgage rates will stay around these levels, it appears, uh, given the Fed's positioning. So the economy is from an underlying point of view is is slowing when you look at something like the New York Fed's weekly economic index which is probably the best measure of high frequency uh underlying demand I'm very focused on underlying demand because that's what matters for inflation and when I say underlying demand it's a sum of uh consumption production um and investment uh where a lot of as you know in the GDP data, you can have net export swings and inventories that kind of skew it. So according to the New York Fed, uh, underlying demand is running around 2%, uh, a little bit above that. And that's on a 13-week average, it's a little higher. And um, if we think the economy can only grow at 1.8% or ish because of productivity and demographic headwinds, you know, that's still a little too strong. And I would expect that to downshift meaningfully again in the first part of the year. Um, in one queue because of just the level of financial conditions remaining around these levels for a long time. So we've seen the downshift in demand. It's clearly not fast enough, which we all know, uh, but it's, I would assume it starts to quicken in one queue as the cumulative impact of the financial conditions tightening starts to take hold. Mm. So... So in terms, Sorry, go ahead. yeah. So in terms of the, um, uh, the shape, so economy still stays strong, starts to sort of a quicken on the way down uh, i guess the big question and certainly we've seen uh you know brainard and 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 obviously the more dovish group of the uh or the fed reserve uh talk about um uh you know waiting to see what the lagged impacts are um uh in terms of the interest rate increases they've already done which as we already know is one of the fastest we've, we've ever seen um do you think that's a prudent policy to be sort of you know, there's a whole debate going on. Certainly, in our office yes. at the moment, is is what is a pivot? <laughs> you know, is a pivot cutting <laughs> rates or is a pivot st stopping to raise them? <laughs> yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, it's a good debate. Um, well, there's a pivot on the policy tool, which is just to stop raising rates, and I think the odds are extremely high that that happens in one queue of next year. And my guess would be somewhere around five percent, which is basically consensus. If we were wrong, you're probably wrong by 25 basis points because it does seem prudent um, for them to wait. I mean, if you step back, we do know that trend GDP is likely around 1.8%. We do know we have a massive demographic headwind. We know we have a productivity headwind. So relative to what trend economic growth is, uh, rates are extremely high, right? And of course, we could end up with an inflation spiral if, you know, the Fed is not, you know, if, is too easy. Um, so, but we have to recognize that demand growth is already slowing. We're already seeing some loosening in the labor market. We're seeing clear slowdown in housing. Everybody at the Fed knows that the trend economy is significantly weaker, or, or sorry, very weak over time. And so that anchors your, that's why probably inflation expectations are pretty well anchored. So it seems extremely prudent, um, given the, uh, as you say, the, the swiftness of the tightening 
to kind of wait. I mean, as you know, as well as I know, if we're anywhere close to 1.8% trend GDP, once you get to 5%, and even at 4%, you can just leave it there for a very long period of time, and it's going to cause a severe slowdown. The major question is how quickly you want to do it. You know, I have this debate with a lot of clients all the time when they talk about, well, you know, when are they going to get to two, and what kind of uh, will that lead to a hard landing or not? I'm like, well, if the Fed really made it their goal to get to 2% inflation, to use an extreme example to make a point, to get to 2% on core PCE for the next six to eight months, like we would have a deep recession. The unemployment rate and financial conditions uh, tightening required to, to make that happen would be severe. It seems very reasonable to me if they want to get to 2% over time, called a two to three year period, that they kind of go to 5%-ish, they wait to see the impact, and then they gradually go back to neutral over time. And so that comes back to my first point where you have a pivot on the policy tool, but not a pivot on their intent. Their intent will still be to slow demand growth and to keep demand growth below trend and hopefully not too far below trend, right? Because you want to avoid a deep recession. You want to avoid a shock move in the unemployment rate. Kind of gets back to what we're calling for the economy is like if, if let's just assume that's true and magnitude is never going to be as easy as I'm, I'm about to make it seem, but it seems very plausible that what the Fed will do and has the potential to pull off, which we have a little bit of high conviction in is try and run the economy below trend for a number of years to gradually get inflation down to 2%. And it's very high odds that they're not going to go to 2% in, in the short term. And I, I would draw that out to three years because the unemployment rate required to do so would be just not politically feasible. So they want to get core PC below three. When they get it below three, they're going to bring the unemployment, I'm sorry, they're going to bring the uh, federal fund rate back towards neutral. Or even when they think that's going to happen, they'll probably bring it back towards neutral. And that's when you'll start to see the intent shift. And that's the real bullish time is when, not when they stop hiking, although that reduces some tail risk, of course, right? And that's the rally we've gotten. But from here, probably requires more confident that they're actually going to start to ease. And that, and to, you know, and for that to get to, for them to have confidence in that, you're going to have to see some slowing in, uh, trend you know more slowing in economic growth mm. so uh, the financial market certainly the fixed income market is obviously um you know, two stands uh yield curve is inverted um in fact the most it's yep. been inverted for i don't know 40 odd years um and um and obviously we know what that kind of means i.e recession is pretty much guaranteed based on historical yep. measures um uh, in terms of that depth of that recession uh, obviously very hard to kind of make a prediction on a hard landing, given the unemployment rate sitting at three, you know, 3.6%, uh, no. very difficult to kind of make that case. Where do you think peak unemployment rate, you know, will, will get to before the feds, you know, cause there, again, there'll be leads and lags in there, but where do you think peak, sure. peak unemployment rate gets to in your view? Four and a half to four, seven. Okay. That's, yeah. that's still historically that's that's mild recession territory right it's not it's nothing like we saw in 08 or or oh yes or, or anything like we've seen in the last you know uh, uh, more sort of difficult periods yeah and you know this is uh you know where strategists go to die with this with the points i'm about to make but you know um I'm about to, you know, make a, a case for a, a mild recession, which associated with that four and a half to four seven unemployment rate, and. I think it's really important for people to understand, at least in U.S. terms, that we have a significant private sector surplus. 
right? Both at a household level and at a corporate level. I would also argue from a corporate point of view, this is the most, the most forecasted recession ever. So leaving uh, decentralized finance and Bitcoin out of it for a second, because um, I do think that's not a significant macro risk. But when you think about corporate America relative to pre previous recessions, um, they've been prepared for this for a while. KPMG did a survey, you know, five months ago, where 90% of CEOs thought we'd be in a recession in 23, and only 30% thought it would be mild. CapEx expectations have come down. We don't have the kind of animal spirits going into this that the Fed is crushing from a corporate point of view. Uh, at the household side, you know, using you know the GFC as an example, the household financial balance was negative two percent. It went up to you know significantly higher. I think a peak of nine. Yet a deleveraging cycle that you know started very quickly, as you know about. Now it's why you had an extraordinarily deep recession. So, uh, given the private sector surplus that we have today, given the shortage in housing, so you shouldn't necessarily see the deep decline in house prices like you've seen, like you saw in 08. The odds of a relatively uh, mild recession are high, you know, relative because you just don't have the potential negative feedback loops develop. Um, so I think that's a really important point. I'd also take it a step further. Once the Fed starts cutting, given the shortages we're talking about, you're probably going to see relative to certainly relative to the post GFC period, um, much more activity in the private sector or positive activity in the private sector relative to the Fed cutting rates this time around. Yeah, very, very good point. Um, and I, you know, generally, I certainly for myself at least, I'm I'm, I'm in you know, in similar thinking mode uh, as we move into twenty twenty three and beyond. Um, I guess one question, which obviously is a big question out there, you know, where do you know in terms of fixed income and and bond yields, where do bond yields need to be? do you think going forward are we looking at one percent real one and a half percent real two percent real uh you know let's assume that the fed's able to get inflation down to say you know i don't know two and a half to three percent as a as a target um you know, yeah uh, you know is it one percent one and a half percent what, what any any thoughts on what you think is a fair real yield in that environment i think i i'll take the fed's estimates of this uh probably 50 to 100 basis points. Okay. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So somewhere around, I, I guess that's why you've got such an inversion of the yield curve. Um, obviously, if you're yes. going to a sort of neutral rate, you know, three and a half, you know, 360. I, I, uh, last time I saw at least 380 on the 10 year treasury, but, you know, um, uh, you know, in that kind of range doesn't seem too outlandish. No, not at all. And you, you bring up a, Interesting point. If you think about yield curves in general, um, yeah, you'll probably get more inversion this year. Uh, but the second we sniff out that the Fed is going to bring the federal funds rate back to neutral and we're going to have two and a half to three percent inflation, what's going to happen to the yield curve? It's going to be a very nice steepening. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's, you know, this time next year, that's the focus. Like, wow. You know, we're going to be forecasting rebound in economic activity. It's coming back to neutral. The Fed fund rate is coming back to neutral. So you could end up with a pretty nice steepening. I get the next six months is definitely, I have no reason to, to argue against more inversion, yeah. to your point. But yeah. 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 I think that transition is also. Um, has been the kind of perfect time to be loading up on those cyclical stocks that you, uh, that you talked about. Um, in terms of kind of sector, um, 
sort of performances that we've seen, you know, I guess something we just haven't been used to over the last decade or so, right? So obviously tech um, has continued to suffer and, and mm-hmm. you know, that um, I think that's quite clear and they're taking actions to, to that. But, you know, industrial's relative outperformance, financial's relative outperformance, obviously energy plus healthcare, you know, when you kind of look at those kind of sectors, those sectors are not typically the sectors you would be expecting to to, to be relative outperformers in an environment that was going to have, say, a deeper recession? Well, it's exactly true, right? If we were going to have a deeper recession, those names would be under intense pressure. Mm. That would be absolutely for sure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so either the market is dead wrong or we're starting to sniff out the fact that the odds of a deep recession are probably lower than what they, we all thought a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think, you know, sort of pulling all that together. Um, so you, you obviously have um, some very interesting guests on your on your roster um, yeah. um, at 22V. And, uh, you know, I'm always very interested to, to, to see the people that you get on. Um, do you, do you want to maybe just pick out sort of, say, the last, uh, we had this discussion a few weeks back, but maybe last sort of two or three you know, most notable, you know, guests that you've had on your, uh, on your, um, you know, on your research platform that you think, you know what, that was super interesting. Well, I think, um, I would say the ones that stand out the most, Stan Drunkenmiller, Larry Summers and Rick Reader. Um, I would say Larry Summers was the one that, um, was most interesting to me out of all that they're all obviously very interesting and, you know, certainly super accomplished people. But the reason Larry Summers was so interesting is because he's obviously been the hawk, right. And he's been calling for a the need for a significantly higher fed fund rate. And I got into this discussion with him and he was, uh, it was, it was a fun interview because he let me ask, you know, very direct questions. Um, so, and I asked him, I said, all right, when you're done with the tightening and, you know, we have this significant, um, you know, uh, turned down in the economy, what does the world look like coming out of that? And what he said was, oh, 1.6% trend economic growth with uh, 1.6% tenure. I'm like, so back to secular stagnation? And I'm like, yeah. And it's like, well, I was like, well, this is really interesting because you're suggesting you need to go to 6% or higher now on the Fed funds rate, but you're also saying that the world hasn't fundamentally changed and it's a really, really weak economic backdrop. So I'm like, are you suggesting that we have to go, you want to tighten so much that we need to go back to the zero lower bound? Um, so I thought that was a interesting and it, it kind of got me to, you know, I don't want to speak for him, obviously, but it's, I wonder how much he actually really believes that the federal funds rate needs to go to 6%. I wonder how much he actually believes, uh, or he was just trying to make sure that the, you know, signal to the Fed that they were too far behind the curve. And he was saying things a little bit dramatic to make his point, because I cannot square going to six percent and then going right back to secular stagnation and 1.6 percent tenure yield i'm like i I like that's a little uh interesting to me um stan drunkenmiller is always really interesting person uh obviously because of his flexibility and thinking and what stuck out to me in that interview in particular and again he was uh you know fortunate to let me ask some pretty direct questions but he basically said i don't know 20 times he had a very strong view on commodity prices. He had a very strong view on energy, um, copper. Uh, but beyond that, he kept on saying, you know, 
uh, I think we could be in deflation or much higher inflation for a longer period of time. I just don't know. He's like 10-year yields here. I've been short them from this point. And then at the time, we were probably at 3.5 on uh, 10s. He's like, I just have no clue at this point. And so it was, it was refreshing to hear him say like, you know what? I just don't, I made some money on it and I'm out. <laughs> and Rick Ryder. Oh, Rick. Yeah. So Rick is, um, fascinating in the sense that, you know, obviously the amount of money that BlackRock controls and then very specific fixed income, uh, a fixed income bent. Um, now as they say, you you know, all politics are local. I think, uh, Rick has a very similar view to ours. So I just, of course, was like, oh, this is the best interview we've done. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I what I loved uh, about the Rick Reader uh, interview was he was he laid out what I would call a much more sensible outline and was very much fading these tales. And it's become so fashionable to talk about the tales. Uh, kind of gets back to my point on on Larry Summers, like, oh, you need to get to this big number on Fed funds. And, you know, and this has helped inform our view. I should be candid about this, where, you know, the odds that we're going into some stagflationary scenario that's really intense is probably pretty low. But the odds of that actually coming to fruition for a sustained period of time are actually pretty low. The odds that inflation is going to subtly come down and we're going to be exactly like the post-GFC period again are probably pretty low as well. Right. And so I loved his modal view of you just got to be flexible near term. It is uncertain that the Fed, there's a lot of uncertainty about how much financial conditions tightening damage has been done. But if we assume um, that the Fed has not overdone it and you are going to have some decline in inflation, then the outlook over a four to five year basis is not bad for both stocks and bonds. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and hopefully yeah. the return of the 60-40 portfolio that's been yes. actually decimated uh, yes. over the last 12 months. And I, actually, that is the consequence of what he's saying, and I happen to agree with that, even though it wasn't fashionable to say at the time, right? I mean, it's obviously, that's when everybody was having their most fun beating up on the 60-40 portfolio. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, just to pivot to the um, to the to the midterms um obviously um uh, you know i mean most market commentators have been fairly happy with the outcome i would say um um uh, unless i guess you were very very republican leaning then you probably weren't too happy but the um uh, i mean do you see this as kind of like the perfect print for for uh from a midterm perspective for financial markets yeah i i think it yes to answer your question, it was definitely the perfect print. Uh, I also think um, that it was unusually um, unexciting for U.S. election, meaning there wasn't just a lot of debate on the table about, you know, it, even though Democrats did a lot better, they it's still a split Congress. The assumption's been split Congress for over a year, so there wasn't a lot of policy debate going into it. Um, there was the threat, and this goes back to September, you know, that the, uh, in addition to what happened in the UK with the budget, that if you had a Democrat sweep on top of that, you could end up with fiscal stimulus in the US to offset, you know, a slowdown that the Fed is obviously creating. And so I think there is, you know, relative to where we were, you know, in September, and I think it's more than just the US election, given what's going to happen with the UK, change of leadership there, and then obviously going from fiscal stimulus now to some contraction, um, 
the U.S. is going to have a budget deficit fight, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, um, uh, keeping the U.S. government for a budget fight here in the next six months, which will probably lead to estimates of pretty sustained fiscal contraction. It, it'll become minor, more less uh, contractionary over time, but it's going to be there. And so, long-winded way of saying term premium in bonds doesn't need to go up significantly mm. based on fiscal uncertainty. Mm. And that's a really important difference. Bond yields can still be, you know, in the levels we talked about because of, you know, expected inflation, um, the Fed not being at the zero lower bound, but the idea that fiscal is going to just keep on, you know, firing away at every problem has been reduced. And so I think that was the important, like last positive straw um, from a global point of view. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I think, um, you know, a term that I hadn't heard since the nineties, um, the bond vigilantes are certainly out, yeah. um, in, in force. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we certainly seen in the UK and that's certainly had, I'll say from a fixed income perspective, the absolute desired outcome um, in terms yep. of, you know, government um, expenditure and, and, and some tax increases, how much, however much I hate <laughs> all of those things. Uh, but, yeah. you, you know, you, you kind of have to be realistic if you can't afford the checks. Right. So um, yep. do you think, that, and do you think there's less of a danger now in the U S I mean, we also have very low unemployment rate, So you wouldn't really, you know that i mean that's kind of the counter to it um you know given that we've got so much um you know we got low you know, or high employment low unemployment which is obviously um, a big driver of fiscal yeah. seats oh it totally is um and 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 there's no need to do fiscal now given how low unemployment is um i would just say ahead of 2024 to the extent that the fed you know, causes a recession and, you know, obviously yeah. it'd be next year and hopefully gives you time to recover in a 2024 election. Um, the risk is of course, um, that if there was a democratic sweep that you would have significant fiscal stimulus coming out of a, you know, any slowdown that the fed induced into 2024 election. Mm. Right. So that's the, I think that's the big the big change and the worry we don't have to, to, to deal with. Um, yeah, but there's no reason right now to expect any type of fiscal. There's just not going to happen in a split Congress because mm. the, the Republicans are not going to give, unless it's a disaster of a recession and you're forced to do it because society clearly needs it. There's the odds of any real fiscal impulse into the U S um, extremely low mm, yeah absolutely so the um um i guess the other question and certainly a big topic of debate when we last met was you know what would break you know what is your uh <laughs> what, what is your your big risk out there that no one's talking about yeah so when we met by the way i think uh, it was funny a lot of people said uh large cap tech some people said Bitcoin, so I think we're, you know, seen. <laughs> so we've seen for two. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit of both. Um, so I guess the big risk out there that I'm, I'm worried about, um, and this isn't exactly in the break category, but it would lead to a significantly lower S and P. Um, what if the U.S. economy reaccelerates? Mm -hmm. All right. What if, if in fact, the U.S. economy is just not as duration sensitive right now? Because a lot of households have, you know, refinanced businesses to turned out debt. Inflation's coming down, so real income growth's about to improve a little bit. 
Um, given the total stock of wealth, which was at a peak 40 trillion, but given the market downturns, probably in the 34, 35 trillion range or something like that, um, that, and you've still seen a decent amount of credit creation. It's come down some, but it's it's still there. What are the odds, to your point earlier on GDP, like what if I'm just dead wrong on one Q and you're, you're, we're looking at a reacceleration in, in demand, uh, the goods economy comes back a little bit, right? The PMIs hook up because we burn through inventories because um, demand is still okay. And you throw that all in a, in a, uh, in a mix together and you could end up with a, you know, a Fed funds rate that does need to go to six and a half, seven percent. And certainly the markets are not priced for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm worried about that kind of short-term burst of spending. That's a, I shouldn't say short-term, a burst of spending or reacceleration. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are talking about that. I think that's a little bit out there relative to current consensus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that certainly would be very interesting and, and obviously against the trend. Um, yeah. Also the short-term trend that we've seen in terms of the economic data, at least uh, yep. you know, going forward. Uh, so just to round up your kind of current views, where, where are you in terms of your overweights uh, in the different kind of sectors uh, and, um, and, and possibly subsectors and, you know, what's kind of piquing your interest at the moment? I'll start with the, the last part first. What's piquing my interest at the moment um, is discretionary and retail. Mm. So getting a little bit more interested in some of those early cyclicals relative to the later cyclicals uh, over the next six months kind of gets back to that kind of yield curve and uh, inversion point. I think um, as inflation comes down and we assume that the economy will have a mild recession, but with core PCE in the three and a half percent range, a labor market that doesn't really loosen too aggressively, wages that stay, you know, at fairly decently high levels. As a, re- as a result, um, we have 1.7 uh, million. Uh, we're short 1.7 million relative to the pre-COVID trend in service workers. So you have a little bit of a labor kind of long way of saying. I see the broader labor force will will be disrupted. I'm wondering if the white collar labor force is going to see it the, the most intensely because mm. there's just not enough service workers to, mm. to get rid of, which means that in aggregate, you might have a pretty, uh, a much better outlook for retail and discretionary, um, certainly relative to this past year when they were the big laggard. Mm. Mm. Very, uh, you know, very, very interesting. Um, uh, what about, uh, international stocks? I know it's not something that you, do you necessarily cover? Um, yep. You know, one of the the themes that we we're thinking about as we move into 2023 is, uh, you know, the outlook for stocks in, you know, Europe or, or China or or other parts of the world could be a lot better, particularly if the dollar you know, starts to to pivot the other way for a little while. Yeah. So the one that jumps out at me the most, and again, thank you. It's not my expertise, but we do look at the broad macro trends and we do look at relative attractive asset um, classes. I'm really wondering if Japan could be the shock long of next year to the extent that they get away with the free rider issue. Yeah. Like the Bank of Japan, as you said, stayed very easy policy. The yen went down a lot. But if inflation starts to come down in the rest of the world, there's a chance they get away with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 that's, and if that happens, given how cheap that index appears to be relative to everything else, and a yen that um, you know starts to improve dramatically, you know I think that Japan could be you know a really interesting year next year. So a lot of turn, there was a lot of premium in the dollar, as you know. Yeah. 
extreme amount. And so that's going to just unwind a little bit as the rest of the world, you know, I mean, I think the Bali meetings were really important negatives for the dollar, right? Mm. Xi Jinping now turning back to the, the developed world to a certain extent. Mm. So UK situation significantly better. Again, Europe appears to be getting a little bit, you know, uh, a little less tail risky. Um, all of that suggests that, you know, dollar should be net under pressure. If we're right, certainly about the US economy slowing as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's uh, that's certainly very, very interesting. Not, not, not too, too different to our view. I think the only thing that uh, maybe I'm thinking, you know, six months out here is that given that China has been in lockdown, you know, chances are that by the time, you know, we, we hit sort of spring, summer period in China, I think China will probably be open, you know, by then as a strong chance yeah. it would be. Uh, and then if you have retail sales that has been severely distressed relative to the normal yep. trend, um, and, you know, I kind of view that really helps European, you know, exporters a lot. That's a really interesting point. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't fight you too much on that one at all. Mm. So, mm. you know, and you have to be, to your point, you have to be a little bit ahead of the China reopening. Uh, yeah, yeah. The day that they declare reopening, the stocks are going to have moved, yep. as you know, aggressively. Yeah, no, exactly. I've seen Hong Kong up 20% plus this month. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, we, we, we're coming towards the end, um, uh, Dennis, and it's been an you know, absolutely fascinating and, and very interesting podcast. But uh, you know, you're a first-time guest on the podcast, so we always ask the standard questions for first-time guests. So, uh, so I'm going to go for the first question. Um, and um, you know, the first is, what has been your biggest challenge in your career to date? I would say my biggest challenge in my career to date, um, focus, mm. wanting to do too many things and focus. Mm. Yeah. I think that's, um, something I've learned over time, but, um, and certainly it's become much more acute, meaning something I've learned particularly the last five to six years. Um, just focus in on what you know. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and learning that lesson over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we do yeah. get, uh, uh, certainly I do get pushed in, in many, many different directions. And, uh, yeah. you know, that certainly is a big distraction relative to, to, uh, you know, what you do and what you do your best. So, uh, the next question and the last question, thankfully is, uh, what advice would you give your young self? If you could, if you could replay your, your, your earlier part of your career, what would you have done differently? Not worried as much as trying to be successful quickly. Mm. I think, um, I wish I understood incrementalism. I wish I understood a more stoic outlook at a younger age, right? Like you, any young person in this business, you know, and I'm not saying I'm super successful. I'm just saying when you're younger, you're always trying so hard to, you know, you know, make a difference quickly. And I get that that's our nat natural inclination, but man, it's a long game. And if you just come to work every day and, you know, try and get a little bit better one day, uh, each next day, um, like it'll add up over time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sh just need to understand like kind of chop wood, carry water. It's going to add up over time. If you're, you know, 
doing the right things, you know, defined loosely. Um, that's the, I, man, I wish I told myself that instead of worrying about like, do I need to do this right away now? Or my, you know, my career is never going to work or something, you know? I mean, that's the, you know, that would be the, by far the single <laughs> biggest thing. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, it, it's one of those amazing things, isn't it? Uh, certainly when, when we have, you know, uh, new talent coming into the organization you know there's that sort of huge hunger that sort of you know what do i need to do to get better you know how do i become a portfolio manager or hedge fund manager within you know, two years yeah. you know that sort of <laughs> yeah. uh, that sort of inclination and and, and it's like uh, you know I, I guess just like warren buffett you know uh, a great yeah. stock uh, matures over time so uh, absolutely you know i think that is all you know uh, exceptionally good advice i think and, and we're never as old as we think we are. Like <laughs> yeah. I, when I was 29, I was like, my career is over if I don't get this done by 32. Like it's just, it's such just nonsense. Like you're just like, it's, it's a really long game. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very, very true. And, and actually you get to realize that, um, uh, your life, your career, your success will come with that kind of thinking. And, and, uh, you know, otherwise you end up sort of making some rash mistakes that you, you wish yep. or you say regret later for sure yeah well dennis absolute pleasure having you on uh, today well, thanks for having and, me and uh you know, we'll certainly have you uh, have you on again you know very soon all right look forward to it great so uh, that was uh dennis de Boucher on the podcast today um thank you very much uh, for listening and thank you very much for listening to beyond the benchmark and we'll be back again next week